If I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. Kafka has an agenda for your software architectures, and it's a good agenda. Ben Stopford is a guy who understands that agenda on a pretty deep level. I'm going to dig into that with him on today's episode of Streaming Audio, a podcast about Kafka, Confluent, and the cloud. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Streaming Audio. My guest today is Ben Stopford. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. It's a real pleasure to be here. Awesome. Now, uh, everyone, Ben and I work together. Ben works for Confluent, just like I do. Uh, ben, what would you say you do here? Uh, that's a good question. I, uh, I work in the uh, team called the Office of the CTO, um, and we actually do a few different things. Um, we do a bit of, th- sort of thought leadership work, um, which is around kind of working out um, uh, how um, people should use a streaming technology in industry, um, and I guess in particularly around our products, but also actually more broadly, and uh, how that fits into the sort of wider e- wider ecosystems, because streaming is really a um, an enabler in many ways. It enables applications, um, it enables different technologies to talk to one another. And it's also kind of a, both a, a programming model, model as well as a sort of an approach um, to uh, architecting systems. And um, so we've, we focus quite a lot on that. Um, we also do um, some stuff around uh, the internal product, like what, what, should we, what we should build next. Um, uh, look a little bit at, again at like the, the industry and, and what other people are doing. Um, and we also talk to customers because it's obviously important to get um, some feedback on uh, how our technology is being used and, and whether or not it's successful and how we might make it better. All right. Yeah. Uh, and it, particularly from, from my standpoint, uh, it's the looking to the future stuff that I think you guys do very, very well. Uh, and I'm, I'm always, uh, I'm not, I, I'm not the best futurist either in general or, or when it comes to technology specifically. Uh, that's not really my, my primary gift. So I really appreciate looking to you guys and the thinking that you're doing. Uh, that's pretty well-informed thinking. It's not just kind of getting in a, getting in a box and imagining what might be, but it's research-based and backed by customer interaction and all that kind of stuff. And I, I like to hear from you on that stuff. Um, the future, of course, is not necessarily what we're here to talk about today, because the other thing when it comes to you that I like talking about is uh, microservices. Now, uh, that might turn out, so if you're listening, you can tell me uh, when you're done listening to this episode, I think you're going to love it, whether that's even the right heading. I, I don't know where this conversation is going to go. I'm committed to that title, and we're going to ship it with that, I sure hope, but um, we, we don't we don't exactly know where this conversation is going to go, but I want to start there. So Ben, you've done some thinking about this. You've got a, a book more or less on the topic. Uh, I, I can't even remember if the word microservices is in the title, uh, but it's it's kind of about that and, and event streaming. Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, not in the title. It's not in the yeah, title. It's not, no. not okay. really, so it's not I really just, a book about microservices. Um, no, it is. I think it is. Uh, it sort of, sort but, of is. Uh, I mean, I think you have to define a little bit what microservices are. And Ooh, um, that sounds like a that sounds like I just tricked you into a question. What? Uh, what? Give us a definition. Well, I mean, microservices is really an evolution of, of, of SOA, and SOA really came in a slightly different context. Context. Um, uh, was, it was a really good idea. It was probably an idea that was a little bit before its time. Um, some of the technologies that were used uh, to implement it, and um, back in the sort of early two thousands, were a little bit flaky. 
And um, actually, there's another interesting thing, which is, this might be a slightly ironic thing to say, actually, but um, uh, in, in the sort of the mid 2000s, the tech industry was, was very much largely driven by vendors. And um, these days, it's actually much more open. It's much more that the internet has really um, created a bunch of uh, leadership, thought leadership within industry. And that wasn't sort of present so, so much the first time around. So I think the second time around, we, we're getting this sort of blend of um, uh, people doing things in industry and talking about it a lot, um, as well as vendors building products which help try and solve some of the problems that were there before. But back, back to the original question, I mean, the, you know, SOA was, a, was really an answer to the, que- to the question, how do I actually build a sensible architecture? Because it, it wasn't clear how one should go about doing that. And but prior yeah. to that, there were things like EJB, um, that whole kind of uh, distributed computing movement that sat around that. And, and those systems were, were pretty difficult to build. Um, server systems um, were also quite tricky to build. Um, and microservices, actually, I would argue, are also quite tricky to build. So the, one of the interesting things about this industry as it's moved forward is that we've kind of gone through these various different uh, sets of evolutions and we're still trying to work out what is the right way to architect these kind of systems. And certainly, I mean, if you take something like a microservices microservices architecture as um, a monolith that is kind of broken up and distributed across a network, then you might well argue, well, is this actually any better than the system I'm replacing? Um, certainly, it's going to be more complicated than the system I'm replacing, and there are actually many- and, and important ways it will be worse. Uh, like no matter what, there there are there are costs you'll pay. It, it, right? It's definitely harder, but I mean, I think the argument for it is that that um, uh, that the total cost of ownership is is, is kind of lower, and um, it's very hard to talk about these things in in, in an abstract sense. Um, so. It, it's much easier to actually like focus in on, on specific examples. So, you know, if you have, because your services actually, when you break your services apart, what you find is that some of them are like really core and need to have really high SLAs. Other parts don't have to be so core and don't have a higher, such higher SLAs. And that you can sort of leverage that fact. But really it's the answer to the problem. How do I build a system that's bigger than one team? Because if I've got, one team, I can build a system and I'll probably be all right with the monolith. If you're a startup building, you know, a relatively small website, then you're probably better off just building a monolith, like a simple application, use nice, quick to deliver programming language like Python or something like that. And that'll, that'll get you to market quickly. But if you start recasting this into the context of like actually having multiple teams and where you want those multiple teams to implement software independently of one another and not get too caught up by um, one another, then you need uh, application architecture, which is actually designed to kind of deal with that. And um, that was probably the big the evolution that the microservices made over SOA. So like one of the common practices in a microservice architecture is that everyone has their own database. Um, and there's a really good reason for that, right? So when we built what looked like sort of SOA stroke microservice systems, small microservice systems back in the mid 2000s, um, that we typically would just have one shared database in the middle. And we our right. services would talk to one another and it all worked quite well. And then we needed, needed to do something a bit data centric. Well, you just, you just pop, pop, pop some data in the database and another service would read it. And this really didn't work out very well. 
Um, and that's actually where I think that, that pattern um, really, really came from. So this idea is that each microservice has its own database and gives you each service the autonomy it needs to be an independently deployable unit, which can be run by a team and not get uh, sort of caught up in, you know, crazy project management orchestration decisions with five other teams every time they want to make a change. Um, the counter problem to that is that you end up with data being sort of stuck in pockets around the organization. And whilst REST APIs are a good way for doing like online communication, that's to say, when a user presses a button, something happens or you pull some data from a service. Um, that, that it's, uh, I might say synchronous communication. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think, okay, yeah. So you, we, we could say synchronous. Well, actually, whether or not it's synchronous or asynchronous is actually a slightly different point. But um, we, you, you, okay. you, you, we could go either way. Um, I think the, the main thing is that your, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a request that basically kind of requires a response. Um, and there is a user sitting there. So if you have many services, you kind of end up with this sort of complex call graph and if any one of them goes down, then maybe the whole user service, the whole you know, responsiveness of the, of the website might may also suffer. Um, but I, when it comes to the data elements, uh, the data side, everyone having their own database often leads to this problem that a company has a core set of facts which proliferate through it. If you're building an online uh, application, which you know, an online shop, then it's going to be orders and payments and customers and all these kind of things. And most services probably need some element of, you know, most of those kind of core data sets, certainly sort of particularly backend services. So, and, and getting them through sort of file transfers or, or, or calling um, REST APIs is not really an ideal way of doing it. So microservice architectures tend to suffer as they get larger um, in a couple of ways. Firstly, that they get very tightly coupled together. Um, and secondly, that the data in each service becomes somewhat isolated from, from one another. And it's actually quite hard then to do, particularly build sort of back-end services. And um, uh, in, the interesting um, solution to this problem came um, from the internet space. And it actually came, I, I would say, I, I would argue almost by accident. So if you looked at you look at the sort of evolution of, of, of architectures like Netflix and and, and LinkedIn, um, they're basically websites, and they built these these big streaming platforms, um, not to solve a microservice problem, but really to solve the problem of how do I get data into my what is effectively a data warehouse or um, my analytics ecosystem at the back, whatever technology you happen to be using to do that, and this just this just created a pipe initially. It's like a pipe. You're landing lots of data and pushing it into this data warehouse. And then from that came the realization that actually that data is pretty useful because it's really an evolving event stream. And that if you're a bit careful about how you adjust that data, it's useful, not just for the warehouse, but actually for pretty much any service. And then um, it could be an offline service like fraud detection, um, but it can also be an online service. And if we look at the, the more contemporary architectures of, you know, pit, companies like Uber um, or, or Lyft, they're actually, actually in a lot of financial institutions, they're now doing a lot of, they're using these, this same approach with streams of events um, to build real-time systems that actually do respond to users clicking buttons and 
waiting in, uh, on websites and that kind of thing. And so forth. So there's a few things there. I want to stop you there. There's, there's uh, an integration problem and then there's a, uh, an analytics problem that you outlined. And it, it, it sounded like you were saying that these, these two separate concerns are meeting in the middle. I want to, I want to come back to that in a minute. Cause that's a, that's a super interesting, super interesting insight. But you said another thing, um, when you were just getting started that I think bears repeating, uh, I think it's, it's really interesting. I've never quite thought this, this way. You said that microservices are, uh, sort of SOA done right, or it's, it's what we really meant when we started doing SOA. And I think that's, um, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to distract us too much from where we're going, but, uh, there's a lot to be said about that. Like the deployment automation technologies, for example, that tend to be an integral part of uh, the life of a team that is, uh, that is building a microservices ecosystem. Those didn't exist back then, right? The, the, the deployment automation was entirely bespoke and probably not very good and often non-existent. And it's beginning to get to the point of being table stakes now. And it's, it's I think there, again, if I could just reflect on this, there's another thing we were saying in 2005 we started talking about the cloud uh you know s3 was a thing and then ec2 was a thing and people were saying oh you could just spin up capacity anytime you need it and you'd, you'd have all this capacity in the cloud it's totally totally elastic and you know that was never true uh really you know maybe somebody did it but it was really hard but that's just another example of uh, this thing we were saying and now we find out later that for example maybe kubernetes is what we really meant when we were saying that uh, you know, container orchestration is delivering on that promise, but microservices as a thing, as a technology that is delivering on a promise we made 15, 20 years ago, uh, was a fascinating idea. And I, I think, I think there's a lot to that. Um, I don't know that we want to talk about it more right now, well, but so, so, well, uh, well, if you're a listener, well, 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 I just say to, to, to that, and I think that's a really good way of putting it, or actually um, a lot of the ways that we were able to, um, uh, programs are able to communicate one another, with one another the degree of automation these all of these advances um really just kind of make these things possible but the rules that actually govern whether or not they actually work right they're, they're the same as they were 10 years ago like actually not much has changed in that regard it's just the underlying technology has moved forwards so you can still look at like m most of the things i talk about in my book you'll find somewhere on the internet or Martin Fowler's blog. I mean, these ideas are, um, they're the same ideas. They're just recast in the context of a more advanced set of technologies. Huh. All right. And you had, uh, another thing I want to come back to briefly that you said was that, um, you know, integrating, integrating services back in the days of so, or frankly, in the early days of, of, when we started using the word microservices, uh, it would be common for people to integrate through a shared database since a shared database was present and it was a technology solution that everybody on the team knew how to use without thinking. You could just use that API and there was no big paradigm shift. You cast that, and, and by the way, everybody knows that's dumb. You know, it's sort of a, a cliche now to say that don't integrate microservices to the database. We all know it, but you cast that as a social failure uh, as a, there, that, that, that would break down not on technological lines, but on, on social lines. I think I heard you say that. Yeah. Because, well, um, if it's one deployable unit, one team, one release cycle, 
then the database is fine. Like one database is fine. You, you don't need a database yeah. per service, really. Right. And it, it's it's actually not even because still evolving schema in a relational database is still not everybody's very good at that. But it's contained. We all we all know how to do something there. Yeah. So it's it's. It, it, this ends up being this. This um, this sort of goes to a conversation about about coupling, which um, I think is is potentially not that interesting. But I weirdly find it quite interesting. But the the, the, the reason it's it kind of pans out that way, or certainly the way I think about it, is that um, uh, you're very tightly coupled to your database, and um, the reason it's really bad sharing it with other people, other teams, is because they're moving at a different rate and. You're really tightly coupled to the database. They're really tightly coupled to the database, and that just obviously ends in in, in tears. And I think we we end up <laughs> promoting this idea that loose coupling is good, right? You know, so we need loose coupling between different services. The, the strange thing is, we very rarely talk about tight coupling being good. Um, and actually, tight coupling is actually equally good. Uh, it's as good as loose coupling. You want as you want to use tight coupling about as frequently as you want to use loose coupling. That might sound odd. Um, but the reason is, is that tight coupling gives you a lot of value, right? So if you have a completely loosely coupled system, then it's probably not going to do very much because nothing can really work with one another um, in, in a sort of very effective way. Whereas in a tightly coupled system, those two components, whilst they're quite tightly coupled together, can actually get a lot of value from one another. And that's basically the relationship that, you, that a single system has with its database, it has this very, very tightly coupled interface. And it has that so it can, can extract as much value as possible out of that database. And that's why it, so that's why it works in, in a single team context. And, and, and I think it, it's the right technology. It's the right place to keep your data in a single team context. But in particularly a multi-team context, um, then, uh, for example, a streaming platform is, is a much better choice because it allows you to decouple, but it still provides you with um, a model in which you're able to share data and retain data inside um, this low low coupling um, uh, distributed log. And this leads to a number of different patterns, which are um, really somewhere in between being able to save, be, be sharing a database um, and actually um, staying decoupled. Right. I, uh, I want to underline that thing that you said there too. That's great. Uh, Loose coupling is not an unqualified good. Uh, we do, as architects, repeat that mantra, uh, but that's actually not true. There's a there's a utility continuum where you know there there are utilities that you realize through tight coupling, and then there are anti patterns that emerge in tight coupling that that uh, motivate you to choose loose coupling for other kinds of things. For example, one might say that uh, in a microprocessor, the ALU and the register file are tightly coupled. And nobody seems to complain about that. You know, like no, nobody is, is really saying, hey, those should be more loosely coupled. Now, somebody who's versed in contemporary computer architecture is going to say, well, there is register renaming, so they're kind of loosely coupled, but not really, right? There's a very, very high bandwidth, very tight coupling there. And, but, and, and, and everybody knows that's the right thing to yeah, do. Yeah, because those two components never change independently of one another. So right. there's, there's, if you if you never change, like if you write a program, like a, if you wrote like a, you know, I don't know, whatever, some kind of system, put it out there and never changed it, then it doesn't matter how coupled it is in, in any way, shape or form. Because coupling is a sort of a, you only, you only notice coupling when you start to change things. It's really a function of time. 
Right. And when you want to change components of a system independently, when you want to make components able to realize their own evolutionary history independent of one another, uh, then it becomes advantageous to have them loosely coupled. Yeah. And, the, and there is- but a service and its database uh, aren't like that. They evolve together always. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right. All right. These are some good things. Now let's get back to, you were, you were starting to talk about event streaming. We had, we had said, okay, you know, database coupling through a database uh, is going to be a problem socially. Uh, earlier on, you had mentioned just briefly uh, integrating SERP. Well, I mean, the whole, the whole problem that, that you were addressing in that thread is uh, we've broken our program up into pieces and now these pieces are evolving independently and we have good reasons for that. And we're convinced of those reasons. Uh, but we have to get the pieces talking and making them talk through the database is bad. And I think briefly you had said that uh, there is at least a disadvantage to coupling services through an RPC mechanism like REST or gRPC um, because of failure cascades, I think is, is really what you said. Is that, am I hearing you correctly? Uh, yeah, I think it's, it, it, uh, RPCs are more, are by definition more tightly coupled. Um, yeah, but but going, going back to that previous conversation that doesn't necessarily matter and this is why it's actually a bit difficult you can't just kind of write down do this and it will definitely work it's it's all obviously taken in context as all of these things and it would be kind of boring if, it, if you could just write it down and follow you know a step-by-step guide and you end up with a great system but the i mean a good example is like uh you know reading data from a shopping cart and an online application like you've got like a, a service which manages your shopping cart and you've got a a website and you've got some JavaScript there that needs to read the contents of the shopping cart. And it makes sense to kind of request response is a good way to do that. And a lot of front end activity request response makes a lot of sense. And where streaming comes in. So the way where streaming comes in as a sort of um, the, the sort of the first point of contact where people start to think about, okay, this, this would be useful, right? This other paradigm, there's a paradigm of using asynchronous messaging, maybe, getting involved with this with, with modeling things as events um that really comes from from breaking away the, the back-end services so that let's say i need to send an email to a user um to confirm their purchase i don't need to make that call from the same service and i and potentially synchronously from the same service that's actually you know processing the order so i don't you know if, if the email service is down i don't want my users my user to have to wait or alternatively worse the service has to sort of sit there and kind of buffer these requests which may or may not make it so the the way you normally people often get into it is because they just want to decouple um these sort of back-end services so that their front end is really simpler and the front end will often be based on request response and it's really just carving a problem up and saying well actually this stuff it's got to happen synchronously i want this you know i want a nice synchronous user experience but actually, this backend stuff, this can all happen asynchronously. And how do I make that happen? Well, I can sort of buffer API calls, request response calls. Um, but that's not a great way of doing it. And then they can start looking at streaming, start moving data around, responding to events. And then that, that sort of ma- their maturity kind of increases. And they start to look at streaming um, actually as a, a technology or an implementation of some of those backend services. So you start looking at things like fraud detection, which are actually often built with stream processes, not just event processes, and they're different things. And um, and then finally you get to that that sort of 
um, uh, you get to the realization that you can do even online things with um, with events in certain use cases where it makes sense. But the, the, I, I definitely would never say like it's not in my mind anyway that we would just get rid of a request response. I think that there are different tools, and you pick the right tool for the right job. And in different systems, there will be probably uses for both of those different technologies and others. Right, right. And that's an important point in thinking about the front end. So when when I talk to people, developers and architects about this kind of thing, a question that usually comes up is that somewhere in life, there is something synchronous or that at least feels synchronous. Like I tap on a user interface affordance on an app or I submit a form in a browser and then I am trained to wait until a thing happens. Like my interaction with that thing is not asynchronous. I am waiting for the result and I'm not going to put the app down until I get the result or I'll conclude that it's broken and I'll go away. So, you know, that's synchronous. And so generally front end frameworks have like, I'll, I'll say WebSockets notwithstanding, uh, HTTP is a request response protocol. And so if you are using HTTP to communicate from your user interface to some kind of backend, uh, that's request response. So it's there and it's not going to stop being that way. And the user's expectations are not going to stop being synchronous. So whatever it is we're doing with the backend architecture, um, we're not reimagining that. And, and none of the, nobody is going to say, well, yeah, you know, we used to think of these things asynchronous or synchronously, but we'll just have to train our users to do otherwise because that's not going to succeed. Um, you know, you have to, you have to meet the, service using public uh, where their expectations are and make sure you can satisfy those with the the backend architecture that we're talking about here. So yeah, Uh, you made a distinction in there in what you're just saying about stream processors versus event processors. You said uh, fraud detection is usually done by, often done by stream processors and there's a difference between stream and event processing uh, elaborate on that. Yeah, so um, event, I mean, event-driven architectures have been around for for a long time, and those are mostly event processors. So, if I have a, um, I normally have an event which I use as, as a trigger, and that's kind of the core of an event-driven architecture. I have a message bus. Someone journals facts, things that are happening in the real world, like somebody placing an order, or literally any fact, any observation of the world, is just turned into an event and sort of fired into this message bus. Um, hopefully, in a sort of you know, sensible way. But, and then we have another process which listens to those events. And let's say I have like a, I get an event, it says an order's been created and it's like, great, I can send an email. And that's like a classic um, event driven approach. So I get my order and my order event turns up and I maybe make a call to like the customer service to get the customer's email address and, and maybe I'll make a call to the payment service also because um, I want to make sure that they've definitely confirmed their payment um, before I send the email. And then I send an email out. And that's like a, that's like a classic event-driven approach. The, the thing which is um, triggering the business logic into action is an event. And from that, I sew together various other things. And streaming is a bit different because streaming basically um, is more about taking a set of a set of different events and binding them together 
that's the, th- the first part of it. So in that particular case, in, in a streaming analogy, um, I would actually internalize actually those three different calls. So the, the order turning up first, the sort of the order turning up, the payment uh, turning up, or the payment event being occurring in the real world, and actually also this lookup of, of, of this customer information. And the stream processor, by, by internalizing it, that, it's able to be a bit clever about certain things that are happening. So for example, um, you know, does the order turn up first or does the payment turn up first? Um, in my example, if the payment hadn't turned up, I'd have to kind of like buffer a bit and, and wait for some, you know, keep polling this payment service to see if it was actually going to turn up and then maybe eventually give up. Whereas a stream processor is able to kind of internalize those. So that's the first thing that it's, it's pretty good at. And that lets you build a very simple service which has relatively complex data requirements in an entirely streaming way. So it's like event-driven plus, you know, across multiple, multiple event streams, you're able to do enrichments from tables. And the second part of, of streaming is, um, is really that, that a stream processor is not only able to deal with a single event, so a single order, um, or maybe a single payment, et cetera, it's able to summarize event streams. And that's like a really important property. So let's say, for example, I have um, clicks on a website and I want to summarize those down so that I have maybe like the count. Instead of just having every single click, I have the count um, of, of how many clicks we get per minute on a particular page. Um, those kind of summarizations um, are obviously useful for a large number of use cases, but they involve not just a single event being processed at one time. They involve this ability to take some context from the previous event streams. So in a streaming application, you're actually pulling in context in a variety of different ways. You're pulling in context from different events which are happening at, at a, effectively at real time, but maybe arriving at different times and the stream processor is dealing with that. You're pulling context from tables, like looking up customer information, um, other associated uh, entities, which is actually very similar to the way like data warehouses work um, in, in terms of pulling dimensions and using them to enrich facts and you're also using this ability for a stream processor to be able to maintain um, state across a stream of events and that gives you context into what is potentially a very large um, event stream so uh would you define then an event i mean give me uh specific names here um an event processor uh is something like apache kafka with you know where you're you're consuming events using literally the the consumer API just to make this very concrete uh, and then doing things with them and a stream processor might be the same Apache Kafka with say the Kafka streams API or KSQL on top of it am I yeah in that, the neighborhood? That, that, that's exactly right so the consumer the consumer will let you read or will actually let you read multiple topics but you'd have to do some pretty clever stuff yourself which is what Kafka streams does to manage like doing things like joins across those multiple topics. So and a, the consumer is basically just a simple event processor. That's one way of looking at it. And something like a Lambda function is actually very similar. These, these, these patterns come up in, in all sorts of different um, guises. Whereas a stream processor is, is, as you said, using the Kafka Streams API. And that's actually a very powerful API. You can use it in a very simple way. You can literally just build a, a event processor using Kafka Streams but there's maybe not that much, you know, there's not so much point in doing so. Um, yeah, yeah, there, there is an API for that, though. You're right. There is, absolutely. So you've got this event, this event processing API, um, which is very, very simple and is available in pretty much every language. And then you've got uh-huh. the stream processing API, which is limited to the JVM. 
but gives you these the ability to filter, join, and summarize uh, and enrich um, uh, events as they as they arrive using yeah. a variety of different event streams, and that's actually like which super powerful. Which I'll say, and I, I, I don't need to make this into a commercial for Kafka Streams, but um, I, not that not that advocating for that API is a bad thing. It's a great API, but um, the point I try to make to people is that you're going to do those things. You just described joining and grouping and aggregating and, and you know all the stuff that Kafka Streams does and state management and all that. It's going to happen if you are uh, if you're if you're building microservices on top of an event bus, uh, you know, like, like Apache Kafka, that, that kind of thing, you will, uh, do those things. Either you'll do them with an API that already exists like Kafka streams, or you will build what turns out to be probably what will turn out to be a buggy partial implementation of Kafka streams. It's not really a question of whether you're going to join streams and do lookup tables and aggregate state and, and, you know, manage distributed state and all that. That's all going to happen to you. Um, and you know, you can, you can build that yourself in the language of your choice, or there's, you know, a JVM based API and that's Kafka streams to do that. So it's good to recognize at the outset that those are not sophisticated operations that certain, uh, some certain class of power users get into, but that's just what happens inside microservices when you are consuming events from a stream. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the number of, if you, if you, if you limit yourself, let's say you just limited yourself to, you know, a use case, which is based on only a single event stream, pretty limited in terms of what you can do in real terms. Certainly in, in the context of a bit of a business system. You know, right. So like typically you're going to need events, triggers, or actual date or data from a variety of different places. And um, I think the, the I mean, the reason I'm kind of bullish about stream processing in a, the wider context is that when you kind of look at this this problem, I mean, we can, I would postulate that we will look back at this in 10 years and like this stuff will seem so obvious that we'll kind of wonder why we ever thought it was any different. Yes. Because like if you're, if you're dealing with event streams, then it makes sense to use a stream processor. It makes sense to use something like a SQL to kind of join these things together. If I'm, you know, if I want, if I need orders and payments and customer information, like why would I write a program that goes all the trouble of piecing that together and dealing with my own synchronicity where I can just fire, fire a KSQL query, in, um, fire a query into KSQL that does all this stuff for me, give me a nice simple stream of events. And then my, my business logic's like, got no boilerplate, no worries about anything. It's completely stateless. You can scale linearly in and out. I could run it in a microservice. I can run it in a Lambda function. My, my, my life is, is basically much simpler. And um, I, 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 think, I don't think we've really got to a point where, um, uh, where people are sort of, you know, the, the adoption is in uh, of these technologies. Um, it's is more, more associated, if I'm honest, with, with, with progressive users still. And uh, I don't think we see, you know, we have the, like the mainstream adoption that you might see with a technology, I don't know, take something like um, Postgres or uh, Spring. And, um, but I think in five years, we'll look back at it and we'll kind of wonder like, yeah, why, why did this, you know, why, why did we ever think anything different? Um, why, why did it seem to be such a struggle to get there? It's good. You're, 
you're absolutely right. I think it's just a mindset shift. It's like the, the database is obvious, right? Because the usefulness of a database is obvious because now, spent, yeah, we spent 20, 20, 30, 40, 30. Long you've been, however long you've been working, um, you know, being indoctrinated in this idea that data lives in databases and you interact with it with request response. And that's great. But when you start thinking, um, we're building systems with events. And these, I said, often, like you won't start with your you know, shopping cart, you'll start with um, these kind of backend services. But when you start building systems in that way, it becomes actually really obvious that you just need something which is effectively like, behaves like a database. But instead of dealing with request response, it deals with events because you're working in an event-driven world. So it just kind of makes sense. And you have the same problems, so you solve them in an event-driven way. And that, that, that to me seems, um, it seems like something which I, I think will, will become um, more popular over time. Yeah, no, and I, again, just some great insights there that, that this is, it's not, event streaming is not a crazy idea anymore, but it's not spring and it's not Postgres. It's not in as many places as that. And it is. I think cognitively a struggle to get there. Like, I, cause I, I talk to people who are trying to get there all the time and it's hard right now. And 10 years from now, we're going to look back and it, I think you're absolutely right. And if, by the way, if as a listener, you disagree, I'm going to have to wait 10 years to take your money. Cause this is really the only <laughs> sort of thing that we can look back on in retrospect, but I will take your money and it'll, it'll be, this is just a good reminder. I think of our own cognitive uh, limitations as software engineers and software architects and thinkers about the future. Um, the, the, you know, there is always a time when the thing that ends up being obvious and table stakes and take it for granted was new and revolutionary. And in our line of work, new and revolutionary and extremely difficult to understand. Uh, and for some people it still is, uh, we're just getting ourselves worked into that. Um, but yeah, I think I think it 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 does have that future, and it, this is, in my mind, uh, a cogent enough argument that I I'm confident it's going to win. But let me let you. You keep saying good things that I, I want to reflect on, so I keep interrupting you. But let me let you kind of take things forward. You're you're trying to describe, really, your your ideal software architecture, or you know, your how we build systems. And you were saying a number of things, like you know, you're talking about coupling, and you started to talk about. Um, event streaming as a means of solving the coupling problem and then sneaking around back and also solving an analytics problem. Um, and it started, it sounded like you were starting to say that those two concerns are going to meet in the middle. And again, there's, there's one architectural primitive that satisfies both sets of needs, but let me let, just like kind of riff on that and go, go where you want to go. Tell us the, the, the Ben Stopford version of, of how to build a system and I'll do my best not to interrupt you. No, I mean, yeah. Well, so I'm, actually, I'm going to go slightly back to, to the previous point, which is that there's kind of this, and, and then I'll answer your question, but um, I think like when you build a system, there is a kind of zone of proximal learning, right? There's like, you can go so far away from your comfort zone and, and still deliver good systems. And that's where I think that there's, there's a sort of an evolution. And actually in, like, in my book, I talk a lot about, in the early chapters, I talk mostly about, about Kafka and and. and and the patterns around event sourcing and how you can build systems with effectively just Kafka. I don't talk so much about streaming. And this is sort of the, the latter um, uh, quarter of the book. I, I, I delve into event streaming in a little bit more detail. 
And, th- and one of the reasons for that is that um, event streaming is actually a bit harder today. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit harder to do. And, but actually, a lot of the value comes out of um, really just getting your data into events and, and, ha- and making, making, them, um, making them flow. And I think that the, um, I, I really do think that the, the event streaming platform is going to become something that's a, a, a lot more, it's, it's foundational. And um, it won't replace uh, a lot of the core components we see today, like databases and data warehouses, but it will significantly affect them. And a good example of this is like, um, uh, let's take a, a sort of a company architecture. And in a company architecture today, you've basically got a bunch of different services, um, often applications, and some of them actually will be things like, you know, things that you bought off the shelf, and other things will be stuff that people made. And they'll talk to one another, because they have to. And there'll be like REST APIs, and there'll be probably files being transferred around. And there's maybe some like ETL going on, and there'll be a data warehouse at the back somewhere. And the only place you'll ever get a global view is inside that data warehouse, which is great because you need to do reporting and you need to have a global view. But um, the interesting thing about uh, event streaming, if you combine, if you switch firstly to this idea, this event-driven model, so I, I, each of my services is, is creating events, it's creating them, those events as soon as they happen. Right? So you've, you start to get this, this flow of data available around the company, which makes it very easy for you to plug new things in. That's like one of the decoupling properties that the event brokers have. And you forget, and that's kind of nice, right? So you, you maybe stage one, you kind of get to this point and all of your company's data is available as events and you build new services, you just plug them into the event stream and probably just push that data into a database, some of it and other stuff you'll just react to in real time. And that's, that's, that's kind of quite nice. And then you kind of get into like some more advanced patterns. So you start to realize things like, okay, well, we've got these stream processing technologies. These, these, these can actually do some pretty interesting things. So for example, I, I've got that nice joined up view in my data warehouse at the back of the organization. That's great for doing my like daily reporting. But what if I was able to have the same joined up view inside my streaming platform? Like what if like these core entities that were kind of joined together were actually amalgamated, not, but not just back there, but also um, at the core of my architecture, I could do start doing some really interesting things there because it wouldn't those that 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 view is now not just isolated in the back. It's actually available to anyone. And what's more, when a stream processor joins these things together, um, the result, the resulting event stream is actually much easier to play with. So for you know, if I have like uh, imagine like just just think of a relational schema, it's like split up into many different tables. Well, if you think of an organization like a relational schema, it's sort of the same thing. Right? It's just instead of being split up into lots of, ta- lots of tables, it's split up into lots of sources of this information. You have various different microservices or services or applications that live around the company. And you've got this problem of like, how do I join this together? I actually, I don't really care where, you know, if I'm building a service, you know, a new service which is doing a recommendation, I don't really care where the data came from. All I care is that it, I can get access to it and hopefully it's kind of joined up. And because stream processes provide this ability for you to kind of join these data sets together inside an event streaming platform, then you can do some really nice things where you're able to um, make, make it much easier for, easier to consume. So I can have now, like, I can build my recommendation service based on um, a set of events, which maybe are sort of pre-prepared for me to a certain extent, or I can actually do the prep preparation myself inside an event streaming platform. And that leads to like a lot of nice properties. So these things, these services then um, become stateless. Um, 
with technologies like Kafka, you can actually retain data sets inside the log, um, which means that suddenly my service actually isn't. Uh, the first thing that my service does, it doesn't have to be write data into the database because I may, may never see it again. It can be, actually, I can just process this. And if I fail, oh, that's all right. I can always just go back. It's already, it's already there. I'll just rewind a bit. And a bunch of kind of organizational patterns emerge from this idea of bringing data, the same data that's bringing the joined up view, which is inside the, the data warehouse, bring it forward um, into this event streaming platform and using that as really as a conduit for both driving the way that services communicate, but also um, providing them with data in a way that A, is very easy for them uh, to consume, and uh, B, uh, is real time. And C, get, remove some of the dependence that you would normally have on a traditional database because you may you can get access to data that you've seen before um, without necessarily having to write it down yourself. Because it's a thing in a log that you're consuming already managed by that uh, central event hub. That Kafka cluster is really what it is. Yeah. So the, the, you, you, if you have a Kafka, let's say you have a Kafka cluster in the middle of, in the middle of a, um, a microservices architecture, it's it's exactly the same thing. It's it's almost behaving like like let, let's take the, let's let, let's assume that we keep our data in Kafka, and there's actually a number of different patterns of doing this. But let's say we just keep all of our data in Kafka, which some people do. Right, then you can say, well, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. That, well, you well, you have to ask the question, like, how is that different from a shared database? Right, that's the that's the first question I would ask if somebody said to me, right. you know, why is that different? And, and the reason it's different is because you can always go back to it, but it's always just an event stream. But actually, what you know, if I build a new microservice that does recommendations, then I'm actually one step removed, and I might decide, right, I'll take the data from out of Kafka and I'll just put it in my own database. Right, I'm quite happy with that. Then I can evolve my database and the data is under my control. And you're quite happy with that. That, 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 that gives me all of the nice patterns that I have, um, that microservices, you know, microservice best practice tells me, um, this is how I should build things. Um, but then you start to realize once you've done that, that you can do these kind of more advanced things. You're like, well, actually I could have a cache, right? Where I source my cache. I still have my own view, still represent the data, how I want to do it inside my microservice, I still govern how and when that changes. It's just where it's sourced from. I can just source it from this central place and then I can be more efficient about the way that I, I'm holding it. I don't have to keep constantly writing it down. And and then the step that goes beyond that is that you actually like, well, actually, you know, I can do most of this with streaming, right? And then, and, and I'm not saying you should do that for every single use case, but there's definitely a number. Um, so particularly anything that's high throughput, um, you would definitely do this. And I think that's what the, the thing that's really going to change in the future is that we'll end up with um, you know, an integral part of an event streaming platform will be a stream processor. It will be a stream processing layer like KSQL. And actually then it becomes really, really simple for you to just, you've got a bunch of event streams. I want to write my recommendation service. I'm not, I know I'm interested in orders, page views, and whatever, some other event stream. I just submit a query, only take the data that I'm interested in. I do it entirely in a, in a streaming way. So the whole process, it's just me having a very, very simple microservice or potentially a Lambda function or whatever Lambda functions turn into in the future. And I have this very, very simple operating model. And I'm actually, I'm still decoupled though, right? Because effectively that 
my query is just filtering out the stuff that I need. I'll actually maybe have a database that I'll use for, for intermediary state um, or for anything that I, that, that, that I particularly need. But the big difference is that in a shared database, the data is entirely held inside the database itself. With an event streaming platform, it's really about information flow. It's about information transfers. And that means that the information is transferred, the data is transferred to your microservice and you own that data. You own that event flow. And that's really, that, that, that's, the, that's the property that really gives it the great decoupling because you're sort of, you're not just, you are centering around a, a central source of truth, but you're actually staying one step removed because you manage actually your own schema, be it in a database, a cache or your stream processing application. So it's sort of it's all about well, the way I tend to think about it is it's like having a this this idea of having a central source of truth, but staying kind of one step removed. That's the decoupling property, and then the real time property is the evolution of when you start to take that pattern, that you can actually build more real time applications that are able to scale much more efficiently and support much higher uh, higher workloads because of the benefits that come with the streaming. The, the streaming approach. And I would say the immutability of those events is a, a key differentiator as well. Um, the things stored in a database are fundamentally mutable things. Events stored in an event streaming platform like uh, Kafka uh, are immutable because events are themselves immutable. So, um, so I mean, that that, that that links back to, you asked about the analytics point. That I mean, that, that's again a sort of more advanced point, but it, it kind of it links back to that, that analytics point that the way that we tend to build systems today is it's like CRUD at the front and maybe some event streaming at the back. And the really the, port, the important point about the event streaming is it kind of it, it actually uh, it keeps everything right. So all of your data you end up with this journal. It's like it's like you know it's like Git. It's re it's recording absolutely everything that's happening and. Yep you're not losing information because you're updating databases in place. And that's really important for, for analytics because in an analytics system, you actually need all of that information. You're basically, you know, often creating some kind of time series of maybe um, what's happening in the company or what users are doing and you want to be able to analyze that. So you actually need all of those individual things that every single user did so that you can kind of extract behavior or, or work out what was actually happening in the system in a, in a particular point in time. So it, it's about turning a, um, uh, event streams are actually very closely related to, to, to time series databases and um, event streaming is really a, a, a mechanism. It's, it's sort of a corollary of a, a time series database in some ways. It's about reacting to a time series in real time, but very much focused on the now rather than a time series database, which is about dissecting time in the past. Uh, so all of your thinking on this is summarized in your book, which uh, everyone is in fact called Design Designing Event-Driven Systems. Um, and that has always been its title and has never had the word microservices in the title. It's just that I think of it as, as being about microservices. And that's, that's a me thing. Don't make that, don't put that on Ben, but it's called designing event driven systems. It's available, uh, anywhere fine books are sold. Uh, you can, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, you can get it through the Confluent website, an electronic copy of it. So, um, 
I can't recommend it enough. Um, I will say it is not a long book. Um, it is intellectually dense, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, there's there's a lot in there that uh, don't rush yourself. Uh, if you're new to these ideas, um, just take some time with this book. And it really is, in my opinion, the right introduction to the topic. Uh, there are probably other right introductions. It's, it's not like the only possible one, but um, you should read it if this is stuff you care about. Um, so Ben, what are you, uh, what are you doing next? What, what's, what are you thinking about for the future? Is that something you can talk about with us? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the future, well, I actually sort of been talking about it a little bit, but, um, yeah, I'm kind of very interested in kind of where we go next. There's the, the, the whole move to the cloud, a lot of the developments around kind of things like serverless are, are super interesting. Um, really because they, they start to um, actually break down some of those, those I think, barriers which exist which to, to moving people away from this way of thinking just simply in requests and responses um, to, to thinking in events. And a lot of the, the, the problems that you see in something like a, a serverless architecture. So if you look at the people who try to build like proper systems with it, um, a lot of those actually can be much more simply solved um, with 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 stream processing techno- technology, and that's that's something that I think uh, uh, that's something that's definitely very interesting. Um, I think a lot of the other stuff that I've been working on is um, is around how um, how we kind of take this up to 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 more kind of organizational patterns. So you can think of something like a microservices architecture, and actually that's like often a microservice system won't be that big. It'll be like a bunch of like small teams might not be that large. It might be living, live inside a department. But as you get to um, larger, maybe company architectures, particularly when you start looking at, at companies that have like maybe several thousand engineers, um, these things actually get, you know, um, a lot of the, the, the frailties of any architecture um, become much more apparent. So it's, it's important to actually have some mechanisms um, which deal with that complexity. The complexity that, and this comes back to that people problem of how do I how do I deal with, you know, a hundred different teams all trying to move independently to independently of one another, and how do I piece this thing together? And that's where like you have to be. I'm a bit more opinionated on the way that you deal with data and how careful you are about schemas and uh, how you deal with data revolution and a lot of the sort of practicalities that come out of running um, at scale not just at a scale in terms of um, processing large amounts of data but also a scale in terms of the complexity of the environment the complexity of, of the organization in which you're, you're deploying these things and that's actually like it's actually a super complicated problem um, and the Interesting is that it's actually where I came from. So I originally came to this problem um, largely because I didn't feel that, or, or certainly in my, my previous experience, I didn't feel that we'd really ever really solved this this kind of data problem in larger companies. Um, I felt that we had like a, a few different mechanisms. Um, we kind of understand some of the laws and no one had really kind of, uh, kind of nailed it. Like the, probably the, the most previously the most advanced way of, of of solving how do I deal with a big organization was like either let's go down the rest approach and we kind of know that had problems 
um, or it was to go down some kind of central database. So I worked in finance for a while and a lot of finance firms actually have like these big central databases, um, which, you know, lots of different teams just sort of communicate with. And both of these patterns are actually kind of flawed in, in, in different ways. And the event streaming platform is because it's really very different to all of those those patterns. It's different to messaging. It's very different to REST, and it's pretty different from databases. Um, kind of gives you this opportunity to really solve that problem. And one of the things I love doing at the moment is is watching and, and talking to customers who are kind of pushing this. And you see some really great things out there um, in the industry. People like really embracing these technologies to um, raise the level at which um, different applications are able to um, communicate and um, actually just build more responsive systems. So that's mostly what I, I've been looking at and a uh, bunch of, as, as long with some, some kind of internal stuff, but um, certainly is this, this move to the cloud and how that event-driven ecosystem um, forms and what it actually looks like which is very sketchy at the moment actually even if you look at it quite deeply it's a it's a very very much an emerging field that's actually pretty interesting um particularly that the comp the sort of the, the convolution of that along with um these event streaming systems so that's me well i can't wait to uh see what the next book is my guest today has been ben stopford ben thanks for being a part of streaming audio Tim, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. And there you have it. I hope that was helpful to you. If you've got questions, you can ask me at at TLBerglund on Twitter. That's T-L-B-E-R-G-L-U-N-D. Or you can leave a comment on any of our YouTube videos. Your question might be featured on the next episode of Streaming Audio. And feel free to subscribe to our YouTube channel and this podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. And if you subscribe through iTunes, be sure to leave us a review there. That helps other people discover the podcast and just generally helps us get the word out. We appreciate your support. See you next time.